Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast series, Immersa People and Passion, sponsored by the ATTC Network. I'm your host, Doreen Bader, the Executive Director of Immersa. This week, we will be hearing about stigma, the not-so-silent killer. Our subject matter experts on this topic are Dr. Deborah Fennell and Richard Botner, moderated by Cheyenne Johnson. Dr. Fennell is a doctorally prepared registered nurse, certified in addictions nursing, and a fellow in the Academy of Nursing. She is currently Immersa's president-elect, an associate editor from Immersa's journal Substance Abuse, and has led the publication of Immersa's substance use competencies for nursing. Dr. Fennell has been a staunch advocate for vulnerable populations, seeking to address the bias, prejudice, and discrimination that leads to stigma. She is a co-author of the seminal publication, Confronting Inadvertent Stigma in Pejorative Language and Addiction Scholarship. She has published her plenary address at the 2018 Immersa Conference on Neural Bias of Stigma and has evaluated the impact of a substance use-related curriculum on students' attitudes and perceptions. Richard Botner is an assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin and a physician assistant in the Division of Hospital Medicine at Dell Seton Medical Center. Richard is also the director of Support Hospital Opioid Use Treatment, SHOUT, a program seeking to increase access to opioid use disorder treatments in hospitals across the state of Texas. And he's the co-PI on a grant from the Association of American Medical Colleges to develop and disseminate the Reducing Stigma Education Tools modules. Cheyenne Johnson is a SALTO Ojibwe and of mixed settler ancestry and is a member of the Tutankhamen Bing Treaty for Reserve in Western Manitoba. She is a registered nurse who works in addiction and substance use care in Vancouver. She is currently a member at large with the MRSA and the co-interim executive director at British Columbia Center on Substance Use and an adjunct professor at the School of Nursing at the University of British Columbia and she is actively collaborating with interdisciplinary clinicians, educators, and researchers across Canada. Hi, Deb and Rich. Thanks so much for joining. Hi, Cheyenne. Nice to be here. Hey, Rich. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having us. Wonderful. Well, I'll just jump right into the first question on our topic today related to stigma. I'll ask, just ask you both. Deb, how would you define stigma? Um, that, well, it's a great question. It's a it's a complex construct, but I think stigma is typically explained or occurs when somebody's determined that an act um, committed by somebody else has brought shame or disgrace. So it's that kind of that stigmata sign, and that they're behaving in a way that people criticize and that they think is wrong. It's kind of a high level definition. Thanks, Deb. How about you, Rich? Anything to add to, to Deb's definition? Yeah, well, um, uh, you know, Deb mentioned this this idea of marking. I think that's a really important historical context for stigma. The, the, the Greek origin of stigma is disease, which was a, a mark or a brand that was burned onto the skin of slaves in ancient Greek times. And um, most sociologists would argue that, you know, today we, we still we still do that. We still mark people, in this case, you know, people who use drugs, whether it's marking in the medical record or 
um, or the way that we, we, we talk about folks or the policies that we put in place. Um, and then there's sort of this subsequent devaluing of that, of that person. And I think, you know, ultimately the definition of stigma to me is it's, it's anything that results in discrimination. And so disparate access to healthcare is what I think a lot of us think about. But of course, it's also disparate um, access to meaningful employment, to housing, and, you know, really many other social needs as well. And you mentioned discrimination, Rich, as a key part of stigma. Do you see there's different types of stigma or different sort of levels to that discrimination that affects people who use drugs? Yeah, um, it's a great it's a great question. I think, you know, a lot of people, when they hear the word stigma, they automatically connect it with social stigma, um, which I sort of think of as when the average person is walking down the street and they see someone who they perceive as somebody who uses drugs, those sort of feelings and thoughts that they have about that person for the average person in our society, those are typically not positive feelings. Those are all sort of rooted in, in social stigma. Um, but to your point, there are other forms of stigma that are really, really important to think about. Probably one of the largest ones, I would say, is structural stigma. So policies that we put in place either at the institutional level within our hospitals or our clinics, um, but it could also be laws and regulations at the city level, the state level, the national level. And those policies, which oftentimes are created by you know, lay people, people without healthcare experience, um, are some of the, the worst stigma of all in terms of creating discrimination. Shane, can I just jump in here uh, with, you know, one of the things that I've been exploring over the last few years is that, you know, what, what are the roots of stigma? And from the literature around the neuroscience, we know that there's evidence from neuroscience that what contributes to this is disgust and prejudice and bias and discrimination. And that you can explain all of those as being rooted in the limbic system. So in addition to some of the things that Rich just presented, I think it's important for us to keep in mind that, you know, when we look at somebody and we perceive that differentness, it's driven based on a brain-based limbic drive. Thanks so much, Deb and Rich. Well, both of you are working or have worked both clinically in the area of substance use and addiction, but also around, around policy, ad administration, and, and research. In your work, could you both describe for me how you've seen stigma affect people who use substances? One of them that stands out for me was in my early career as a nurse. I was working on inpatient unit with um, psychiatric inpatient unit. And we had an older woman who was brought into the hospital by police. She'd been living in her car. And I use that in air quotes because she had been drinking alcohol to the point where she had experienced neuropathy and couldn't walk, couldn't get, even get out of her car. So she was brought into the hospital grossly disheveled, as you can imagine, smelling from being in her urine and feces. And when in this, when she was brought to the inpatient unit, the staff were just disgusted. This woman came from an affluent neighborhood, and they were like just disgusted with how she was presenting. And Thankfully, in my at this point in my career, I had already learned about how alcohol can co-opt the brain. 
And so I really looked at her with great um, empathy and understanding. And um, when she improved, then the staff were more likely to be accepting of her. And then as I moved on in my career and continued to explore this and really looked at the neurobiology, I realized that we really have a long way to go to address the needs of these vulnerable and highly stigmatized individuals. So that's one that stands out for me in my early career. I think I'm, I, I, I'll, I'll share a personal story as well to respond to this, because I, I think, you know, Deb talked about how when she encountered this earlier in her career, she had this infrastructure, this training and the support to sort of identify stigma and, and, to, and to help this person. And, and I imagine many, many others, Deb. Um, and, and I'm going to share the opposite, which is when I started in healthcare as a EMT in New Jersey when I was 16 years old. Um, I worked in the field as a public safety person for almost 10 years before I went to PA school. And um, I was one of those people who stigmatized people who use drugs. It was the you know environment that I was in. It was the education I had up until that point. And we would go on these calls for service for people who use drugs. And after those calls were over, we would sit around and say very disparaging things about these people. We would make assumptions about their backgrounds and their lives and, and really, you know, created this environment and poured fuel on the fire of this environment where people who use drugs were not looked upon favorably. And I worked for many different agencies in three different states. And that was my experience in all of these agencies. And, you know, this was 15 plus years ago. Hopefully things have changed a little bit. But when I went to PA school, I brought all of this with me, all of this sort of stigmatizing baggage. And, you know, you would imagine that in an academic program that there would be mechanisms to sort of uh, decrease that stigma. But um, as I'm sure we all know, that the opposite occurred there as well. So in my didactic training, a lot of the exam questions were stigmatizing. A lot of the lectures were stigmatizing. And when I went on to my clinical rotations, again, you, you might hope that there would be experiences there where stigma would be decreased. But again, it was it was actually reinforced. Um, my emergency medicine rotation, my hospital medicine rotation, my primary care rotation was not teaching the sort of lessons that uh, we now strive to teach learners about people who, who use drugs and people who have substance use disorders. Uh, and so, you know, 15 plus years into this snowballing effect of reinforcing of my own stigma, um, I was one of those people when I graduated school and became licensed to practice who, you know, wanted to uh, discharge the quote unquote frequent flyer right, as quickly as possible. I was one of those providers who wanted to, you know, move patients through as quickly as possible because I didn't want to deal with withdrawal. I didn't know how to deal with withdrawal. I was not trained to identify my own biases around um, people who use drugs. And of course, you know, three, three and a half, four years ago, I was offered the opportunity to uh, have a leadership role in our buprenorphine program. And, if, you know, entirely life-changing. And I'm so just amazed when I look back on how I used to think about people who use drugs. And so I guess that was a long answer to the question, but um, I think it's important to, to, to appreciate that we need to do more from an education perspective. We need to do more to raise awareness about stigma. And I think just looking at my experience and Deb's experience, just based on our upbringing within the healthcare system, two very different stories based on that. Thanks, both of you, for, for sharing those 
those important stories. And I think the thread that tied them both is is really around education. You know, Deb noting that she had some background on the pathophysiology and the effects of alcohol uh, intoxication. And, and Rich, you sharing from your experience, you had clinical experience that you actually brought in stigma from your clinical experience and were able through education and experience uh, with other healthcare providers to work through that. I guess maybe thinking about new healthcare providers in this area, what advice would you give them, you know, just starting out uh, really around, around how to best manage stigma starting out as a new grad? So I'll jump in here. One of the things that I think is critically important, and certainly we've written about this and Immersa has taken the lead with this, and is the language that we use. And, you know, Rich gave some examples in, you know, his last response about kind of the quote unquote frequent flyers. And so there's the there's pejorative language that gets used in describing people with alcohol and drug use. So I think that's one of the first that to me, that's like low hanging fruit. We need to really talk about instead of someone is an alcoholic or an addict to refer to them first as a person, a person with an alcohol use disorder or person with a drug addiction. And I think that that's critically important. The other thing that I've really spent the majority of my career around is educating around the neurobiological basis of these disorders. So to really encourage students and other clinicians to consider that alcohol and other drug use disorders are chronic relapsing disorders and draw parallels to other chronic health diseases that they may be much less pejorative um, or stigmatizing towards, such as people with diabetes or people with hypertension, for example. So those are a couple of examples. One is looking at and reflecting on the language that we use and also around educating around understanding the pathophysiology or the neurobiology. Absolutely. I, I agree. Language is, um, as Dev said, it's it's low-hanging fruit. It's something that we can all do is use patient-first recovery center type of language to describe uh, people with substance use disorders it is, is something that's so easy to do, and, and, and we should hold ourselves accountable to do that. I also think there's a real need to counteract the narrative that people who use drugs are hard to work with, are challenging, are dangerous, is not rewarding work. All of that is, you know, couldn't be further from the truth. And there's a lot of weight that often gets carried with statements and stories uh, about people who are hospitalized, who have a history of drug use, and, and they may say something or do something. And those stories get carried on with administration. They get carried on through academic training programs you don't really hear the positive stories, right? The patient who was started on buprenorphine during hospitalization and linked to outpatient care and did really well and, you know, found recovery, however that person, you know, defined it. You don't hear a lot about that. And so I, I really think 
Um, and that's something that we've started doing is really trying to empower trainees and early career folks to share those narratives and to give space for those narratives, whether it's writing about them. You know, we, we had a patient draw a picture about his experience being hospitalized and sort of meeting our team and what it was like compared to um, hospitalizations he had at other institutions. And, and the picture was really profound. And, and we share that picture every opportunity we get because it really helps to, again, sort of counteract that narrative. I think that's that's really important um, as well. Thanks both. Yeah, so I think some important themes around language is so, so critical. It really, especially when we're working with trainees and early career individuals to really set them on the right path. And again, kind of provides that learning moment, as you're saying, Rich, when you're with trainees or others to share those real success stories about how rewarding and how beautiful it is to work with people who use drugs, people with substance use disorders as a specialty area of a practice for many health disciplines. Being a part of Immersa, and I think all of us do research in, in some area, you know, we'd be remiss to not talk about research and, and really centered in this conversation because you've shared a lot about your both of your clinical experiences around stigma but really can you both share with us what does the current research literature tell us about the harms of stigma well I think one thing that we hear over and over is that stigmas um, prevents people from seeking treatment and yes that I think there's a solid evidence for that I also think that even if people get past that barrier to get into treatment, then if they experience stigma when they're in treatment, then how does that affect them? So if they're cared for by healthcare providers who are using the best evidence, who are empathic, who are using patient-centered language, who are really in this work because they have a passion for it and they love what they're doing, then I think that's going to be reflected in the care that we provide to patients. Now, if we continue to use a moral paradigm, meaning blaming and shaming patients, then we're going to continue to see some of the same results. And so what we need to do is really shift to a paradigm that embraces the evidence and that really focuses on understanding that treatments do exist and that recovery is possible. And again, going to some of the side of the perspective of those stories of success with people in recovery that Rich just kind of gave some examples of. Yeah, I, I think I would start by saying that that, that there's so much we still don't know. I mean, there's a lot in the research about or in the literature about what stigma is and how stigma affects people who use drugs. But there isn't as much around how do we solve the stigma problem. And I, I just want to, you know, highlight how important that is. We all, I mean, all Immersion members can speak to all sorts of barriers that we experience in our clinical lives to provide the best possible care to people with substance use disorders. And across all of those barriers that we've experienced in our hospital program, when I reflect on the last three years, I would say that stigma by far was the biggest of all because all of the others, whether it was reimbursement issues or hospital policies or whatever it might be, all of those other barriers were somehow go back to stigma. And so I, I think from a research perspective, there's a lot that we know, but there's still so much that we don't. 
And I guess in terms of what we do that I, I would highlight, um, so from a clinical perspective, we know that stigma results in a lot of decreased access to care, but across, you know, sort of specific diagnoses, there's some really good literature about um, decreased access to valve repairs from infective endocarditis, uh, decreased access to liver transplant for folks who have hepatitis C from intravenous drug use, stigma during uh, pregnancy for women who are pregnant who use substances and how that limits access to care and often results in separation of the child and mom after delivery. Um, from the work that I do in hospital medicine, there's an abundance of literature around patients who self-discharge because they feel stigmatized during acute hospitalization. Um, so there's lots of sort of evidence around how stigma decreases access to care. The other one I would highlight is, um, is self-stigma. And so sort of the idea I mentioned earlier about social stigma and structural stigma, um, another type of stigma is, is self-stigma, which, you know, briefly is a stigma that the patient experiences themselves, the person who uses drugs experiences themselves, that results in what sociologists call the why try effect. And so they are stigmatized for so long and the, the system has been designed to work against them for so long that they start to experience this sort of profound sense of hopelessness. And this is what I see in our safety net hospital, right? I, I see patients who don't otherwise uh, receive care in the community, not because they're, they're undeserving, not because they don't want it, but because they feel like, why should I even try? Because the system is really designed against me and the stigma is just so powerful. Thanks to you both. It sounds like there's obviously a wealth of literature that from an evidence-based perspective, you know, Immersa promotes clinicians and healthcare providers and others to utilize that, but also a, a lot of gaps for future research, as you're noting, Rich and Deb, on how researchers could really look at how we overcome and combat stigma, you know, through strategies such as education and other approaches. You've both touched quite a bit on your clinical experience and, and how you've seen stigma affect patients and families that you've cared for. But could you tell me a little bit about or give some specific examples around work you've done at the institution or policy level on strategies that you found to be effective to reduce stigma in the workplace? So my focus has been primarily in the academic setting and it's um, looking at uh, language, yes, and educating students about the neurobiology and pathophysiology and treatments. Um, but from a research perspective, which hopefully influences policies, it's to look at and measure attitudes and perceptions of healthcare providers and begin to identify what are interventions that can help to change those perceptions and attitudes. Some of the research that I've done has been around uh, educational interventions, providing that education to students. And then with one of my postdocs, Khadija Mahmood, looking at what happens when you immerse people in clinical experiences. And I think particularly in those clinical experiences where they have very positive role models that are providing care for patients. Those are just some beginning ideas. We don't have a addiction medicine consult service, unfortunately. I wish we did. And about three years ago, several hospital medicine providers and, and psychiatrists and others at our institution um, banded together to start what we call the buprenorphine team. So a volunteer group of folks that really tries to initiate buprenorphine therapy and, and sort of shift our standard of care 
um, in the hospital to uh, make sure that patients who are interested in buprenorphine have access to it and that we link them to care at discharge. In hindsight, in reflecting on that experience over the last three and a half, four years, um, we've evaluated over 200 patients um, in this program that starting buprenorphine and providing clinical education about evidence-based treatment for opioid use disorder. This is anecdotal. We haven't you know, measured this, but it certainly seems that creating a space where people can get evidence-based treatment in the hospital has subsequently helped to reduce stigma. Because rather than clinicians, nurses, pharmacists, et cetera, being frustrated that they don't have the tools in their tool belt to help people that now they have something that they can. And as a result of teaching about this evidence-based medication and people sort of seeing and observing you know, themselves, the effectiveness of it, we also have had opportunities to educate about language you know, to Deb's point. And so as we've shifted our culture to being more sort of treatment-oriented, harm reduction-oriented, I think we've also reduced uh, stigma. And about a year and a half or a year ago or so, um, we actually got a grant from the AAMC to sort of further explore this. And one of the outcomes of that was the, the development of our reset modules, uh, resetstigma.org, just a shameless plug. But really, that's, uh, that's, those are free educational modules around reducing stigma around substance use disorders. And again, I think, you know, to Deb's point, the, the education piece of this is, is really, really, really important. Thanks, Wolf. I would agree. I mean, I think that's so critical. You know, you mentioned both of you mentioned kind of frustration or sort of working through that from an educational standpoint. And that's definitely been my experience as well, that often clinicians and healthcare providers uh, haven't had the training and education around how to effectively screen and treat and promote recovery in, in individuals who use drugs. And, and they want to help. You know, we're in a helping profession for a reason. We care about patients and our communities and, and their families. And so when you can give people those tools, as you say, you can really create a culture around harm reduction, using evidence, supporting recovery that I think can be so, so, so effective. I wanted to ask another question not related to your workplace uh, and wondering if both of this sits with you. You know, as a nurse myself and, and working in the area of substance use and addiction, I often, my text messages are coming in, people are calling me from my friends and family network really on how to support individuals who may have a substance use disorder having problems with their substance use. But often the way that they approach me in asking for help can be quite stigmatizing to the individual that they're trying to support. So I just wanted to know some kind of tips and tricks from both of you sort of outside of the workplace with friends and family. How do you address broader issues around stigmatizing language or approaches to substance use? So I view those kinds of responses that come in much as the way I do with students. It's educating, correcting language in a kind way to use that person-centered language to help them understand how alcohol and other drugs co-opt the brain and to really understand it from a scientific perspective while balancing with kind of the emotion of what they experience and the reactions that they have because their family members or friends who oftentimes are so close to this that they can't their their objectivity is lost understandably so so it's really trying to help them understand again the uh, what's available that 
also to send a message that there are treatments and that recovery is possible. And I think that, you know, the more that we have people in prominent positions, whether they're people in the sports arena or in politics or government positions that are very open and kind of come out about their own challenges. And we have role models like that who talk about and understand that this is something that is a disease and that it can be managed and that recovery is possible. I think that that really helps in terms of sending that message to really the entire public. Rich? I'm jealous, Deb, because it sounds like you're very kind in your responses to uh, friends and family who have these sorts of stigmatizing questions. I'm probably not quite as kind. I'll add that I'm from New Jersey, so there's often lots of like four-letter expletives that are in some of these conversations. But, you know, I think a lot of what I find frustrating in, in a lot of the conversations I have with friends and family is what we see in some of the research that so much of what lay people think they know about substance use and quite frankly, my own uh, understanding of substance use disorders before I actually started working in this field is what you see in the media. It's what you see in the movies. Um, it's what you see on TV. And, and those are so rarely, if ever, accurate depictions of what a person with substance use disorder is going through. And it often, probably the biggest thing I try to get across to friends and family um, who aren't in the know is, is that these are incredibly complicated issues that have been cemented through decades of bad policy that have affected people in our country in very different ways, just based on the community that you live in. And in many cases, quite frankly, the, the color of your skin and, and people don't appreciate that, especially late lay people. And so I think, you know, I, I'm at a point now where a lot of folks um, in my inner circles who, who don't work in healthcare, they know if they're going to ask a question that they need to ask it in a certain way. But they also know, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat joking, that I, I, uh, I try to be as approachable as I can with this. I always have a lot to share about this because to your point, Deb, I, I see it as an education op- opportunity. And I also feel to a certain extent that there's a bit of a difference depending on the generation of the person who's asking the question. So I find a lot of my friends that I graduated undergrad with, they ask things in a more inquisitive way. Like they truly don't know the answer and they're curious. I have uh, several friends actually that follow the the conversation about psychedelics, for example, very closely. And they, they want to talk more about it in a very sort of educated academic kind of way, um, even though they have no formal training in medicine. Um, but I find that, you know, um, the opposite to that would be like my parents or my grandparents that are not nearly as open to some of these ideas or or open to the idea, period, that, you know, people who use drugs are, are people who are deserving and in need of care, just like you are with your heart failure, for example. Um, and so uh, it's been uh, it's been challenging to have some of those conversations. But I will add that they've gotten easier over time. And I do think that we're moving in the, in the right direction as a, as a country and as a society. Thanks both for, for sharing that. I think they're challenging conversations, but important ones to have to really, you know, encourage people in your lives to talk about their thoughts and feelings around substance use. So we can really break down some of those 
some some information that you know in fact really isn't true and start having those deep conversations about the intersectional nature of this work and addiction as a disease because it's really challenging perhaps as a last question and i hope this one will end us maybe on a positive note in north america you know i'm coming from you from canada we've been in an overdose emergency a crisis for the last five years actually in april will be the five-year anniversary of a public health emergency here in british columbia have you both seen or, or do you feel a bit hopeful around the spotlight that's been shone on substance use and addiction because of the overdose emergency? Do you think that's had any positive impact on how we're approaching substance use and addiction from a stigma perspective? I think it has to some degree. I think that my frustration is that it has shown more of a light on opioids when we still have such a significant problem and prevalence with alcohol use and alcohol use disorders. So, you know, I think that we go where the attention is right now with opioid use. However, I also think the pandemic has shown light on all of substance use with reports that are coming out that alcohol use, other drug use, including opiate use, has escalated as people have been going through the pandemic. I'm hopeful in terms of the opportunities for continuing to open this conversation. It is appearing more so in the mainstream media. I think it offers the opportunity to speak to this in natural, normal, ongoing conversations as people read the headlines. I think as we see campaigns such as, well, the work that certainly Rich has done with Reset, but also some of the campaigns like Kicking the Stigma campaign that the Colts football team has launched, brings more awareness to this in terms of bringing it out from underneath the bushel basket where it's been hidden for way too long, continues to be secretively discussed within families and within communities. So the more that we begin to expose this alcohol and drug use as a problem, the more that we understand that our reactions to people in differentness is normal, but we have a responsibility to be aware of that and to manage it effectively, then I think we're moving in a better direction. Maybe Rich can be a little bit more hopeful. <laughs> I think I, I share your degree of optimism. I, you know, I've been so, I don't know if amazed is the right word. I, I, there's been so many colleagues that I've met over the last three and a half, four years of doing this work um, even at my own institution, who have confided in me that either they personally or a very close family member uh, had a substance use or is in recovery from a substance use disorder or has lost a loved one or a close personal friend to a substance use disorder. And I, I so badly want to say to that person who, you know, tells me these things in the strictest of confidence that, that hey, you know, John Doe, Jane Doe, the colleague that sits four cubes down from you, you know, told me the same thing about their family last week, right? And so I do think, to Deb's point, that 
we've created so much discussion as a as a community, not not just a medical community, but as a community, as a as a society around um, substance use disorders. And, and you know, I agree with Deb. That there's been certainly an overfocus on opioids, but there's been a focus on drug use nonetheless. And I think overall that's helpful. The challenge is if those conversations aren't moderated, if you will, in the right way, then we actually stand the chance of just reinforcing the bad stigma. I mean, that's literally my story of my sort of academic upbringing um, up until I started actually doing this work. Uh, And so I I do think we need to be more mindful about how we address stigma. Um, And, you know, I'll probably close just by saying, you know, there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful on the horizon. Um, there's lots and lots of funding that's starting to be discussed and funding that's been approved to address um, substance use disorders. I would urge the immersive community and policymakers to really think about how we spend those dollars. Oftentimes they, they're invested in major research or in service delivery, but we should be thinking about how can we use these to contribute towards you know, stigma reduction as well. Well, thank you both so much. I could sit here and talk about stigma and issues around substance use with both of you all day, but I do think we have to wrap it up. A huge thanks. You know, both of you are part of this extended Immersa family and just great to see and talk and have you be so open about your clinical and work experiences and personal experiences around combating a huge issue in the work that we do, which is stigma. So thanks to you both. Thanks, Cheyenne. Thanks, Rich. Thanks so much. That was Dr. Deborah Fennell and Richard Botner in conversation with Cheyenne Johnson on the topic of stigma, the not-so-silent killer. Thanks so much for listening. To learn more about the ATTC Network and the Association for Multidisciplinary Education and Research in Substance Use and Addiction, please visit our websites at attcnetwork.org and immersa.org. For a transcript of this podcast and other related resources, please visit the ATTC Network website. This podcast is supported by funding from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS or SAMHSA. Information shared and views expressed reflect the speaker's best understanding of science or promising practices at the time of recording and should not be seen as directives. Content related to privacy and security in 42 CFR Part 2 presented during these sessions should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners are directed to discuss recommendations with their agency's legal counsel. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us again.